Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, November 8th. Of course, this podcast has not been the daily show it often is of late. I do apologize for that fact. It turns out there is a finite amount of tennis I can talk in any given day. And of course, I do also want to start this show with a massive shout out to Michael Haston, the entire second serve team. It was an absolute blast to be in in Los Angeles to be able to be a part of a studio show, something I have often dreamed of doing. Finally had the chance to do that. Hopefully, some of you tuned in. You got to hear all the usual takes, all the usual bits. They were making fun of me by the end of it, which, in my opinion, is actually a good thing. But maybe that's something for me to unpack at a different time. That said... A lot has happened in the professional tennis world over the past week. And as I promised to all of you listeners on last week's Friday show, I'm bringing in the big guns here to start the mini break podcast this week. We're going to play catch up, divide things into two parts. I'm going to talk ATP Paris on one show, WTA Tour Finals on the other. This show will be the ATP Paris recap. And obviously, what a phenomenal week of tennis. Holger Runa in any other season would be the story of the year. The 19-year-old goes from outside the top 100 to inside the top 10 to end the season. He also captures his first Masters 1000 title. Five top 10 victories in a row on his way to that title in Paris. Is it the best title run we've seen from any player this season? That's something we can discuss here on today's show. Of course, we also have to talk Novak Djokovic, Carlos Alcaraz, retirement, the field in Turin now set. We know the eight players competing at the ATP Tour Finals. Are there any snubs for us to discuss? We're breaking it all down on a mega edition of the Mini Break Podcast today. And if we're going to do that, as I alluded to, I got to bring in the big guns. I brought in the biggest I know. Of course, you know him best as a host of two of my favorite shows, Monday Match Analysis, 3A Tennis Show. Of course, you also recognize his dulcet tones as a play-by-play commentator for both T2 and, of course, sometimes he gets the call up to the major leagues. That's right, folks. He's on Tennis Channel. Of course, now, though, I get to call him a colleague and Cracked Rackets contributor. Welcome back onto the show. My dear friend, Gil Gross. Gil, welcome. How are you doing today? Krusky, uh, great to be back on. Uh, it was great to have the pleasure of taking our shoes off and eating sushi together <laughs> on Sunday night. Uh, I also want to make it known that I disagree with just about everything you just said. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm trying to think of which directions you could take this disagreement, whether it be <laughs> that you're a Cracked Rackets contributor, you're actually lower on the totem pole than that. This is a mandated work order. You're forced to come on this show now. But no, I do want the listeners to know that I promised all of you, and I said on Friday's show, he doesn't know this yet, but Gil's coming on early next week to break down Paris. True or false, that's exactly how I presented it to you at dinner. I said, look, you've already been promised to the listeners, my friend. I really need you early next week. Yeah, and we were not wearing shoes either. We <laughs> you totally did that. There were no shoes in the equation. They were in the cubbies, and and you pulled that on me. Yep. In Underrated. A very, oh, go ahead. I was saying a very intimate environment you thought that would give yourself the best chance to get a yes well you can't say no when our shoes are off because like i'm gonna start kicking you under the table and you can't (laughs) escape because you're like dug in and by the way cubby underrated word i haven't gotten to say that since like second third grade not a lot of usage (laughs) for the cubbies older in life but shout out to the cubbies shout out to what was the name of the place it started with an i uh arori yeah, shout out to Aurori Sushi. It was delicious. We had a wonderful meal. We broke, I was going to say bread, but we broke rice, I suppose, in this instance. It was uh, delightful. And you know what? We billed Dalton Thieneman because the boss has to take out his two-star clients. So uh, there's a little story uh, for all of you at home. That said, obviously, the big thing we want to discuss here today, the ATP Paris Masters 1000, technically the final open event, I suppose, on the calendar here for the 2022 season. Now, we still have challengers. We'll have countless ITF events, some of them for you on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. But, you know, that said, ATP Paris 1000, I guess my big takeaway before we get into any of the Runa stuff specifically It felt like this tournament mattered from start to finish, and that was a big theme for me down the home season stretch, is that this post-US Open run with emergences from players like Holger Runa, Felix, Lorenzo Musetti, who you feel like are all going to factor into the big picture discussions moving forward, I think I'm putting more weight on this year-end run than I have in seasons past. I'm curious if you feel that way as well, because the idea of young guys taking the next step, that's just a valid thought, and it just happened to be in this portion of the calendar. Well, it it definitely brings it, like the Runa storyline is an unexpected surprise for the end of 2022. Like now there are two teenagers in the top 10. Alcaraz... (laughs) And look, this could go away quickly. I mean, we saw kind of what happened with Runa's season. It was it was quite a roller coaster with this phenomenal clay court season. He goes super deep at at Roland Garros and and beats CT Pass there, which was a big deal. And then he loses his next seven matches. Yeah. Uh and and now he goes on this absolute tear on the indoor hardcourt season. So I'm guessing things are gonna stabilize. I'm guessing in 2022 it's gonna be, well, he's not that bad and he's not this good. It's somewhere in between. But the fact that he's 19 years old um and his game is incredibly complete and the weapons are there uh it's not like this is what i said on my on monday match analysis after the after the final it's i don't think we're going to look at this paris final in the same light that we look at hatchinov over Djokovic in 2018 we look back at that we think hey that was kind of crazy that was a little weird (laughs) i don't think we're going to look back at this and think whoa remember that whoa that was strange 
I, I think we'll look at it and it was like, okay, yeah, that was the breakthrough. And there was some continuity there. In terms of the indoor hardcore season as a whole, one thing I felt is a lot of the top players had difficult seasons. So I felt that, like I felt that, oh, it matters for Djokovic. It matters for Medvedev. Where I think in some other years, you might look at a Djokovic or a Medvedev, a player to that level, and you think, well, this doesn't really matter for them. Yeah, that's a fascinating thought. And to incorporate some stats behind that, I have my stats leaderboard takeaways from the 2022 season now because I'm not going to count the ATP Tour finals in this sort of look at what happened here this year. You talk about some of the top guys struggling. I think the stat that epitomizes that most most top 10 wins in the 2022 season. I'm not going to ask you who had the most top 10 wins, but how many top 10 wins did the player who led the ATP Tour in top 10 victories have this season? Seven. So that you guessed seven, shout out to you, Price is Right rules, you went under. It's nine, but it's under 10. And that is shocking because it is very rarely, if ever, under 10 top 10 victories. You want to look even last season, total top 10 wins. Djokovic 14, Zverev 12, Medvedev 10. Now, 2020, obviously an abbreviated season, but even in that year, Novak Djokovic had 10 top 10 wins. No one had 10 top 10 wins this season. And that gets to your point of, yeah, we had some players who were pretty good this year. When Novak played, he was still... Novak freaking Djokovic, go look at the Wimbledon run, how it was truly never in doubt for him. That said, even Alcaraz struggling a little bit, and I say a little bit, down the season's home stretch post-US Open and, you know, not having the greatest grass court season, there was no elite of the elite standout player here you know if you're if you're putting it on the pantheons of seasons did anyone have a pantheon season not probably now Alcaraz did for a 19 year old you know Holgaruna might be in the discussion for a teenager but yeah I don't think we saw a single pantheon season this year Gil just look at the rankings yeah you have sure. one guy you have one guy with over 6,000 points in in Carlos Alcaraz you have three guys between 5,000 and 6,000 um, and that's kind of all you need to, I mean, that's your top four, right? We don't need to keep going. Like the world number one typically has like 8,000 points, not 6,000. Yeah. Or it's like, if I ask you, what is the gap in your thoughts about seventh ranked Andre Rublev and 16th ranked Matteo Berrettini, you would say, I have no gap. I could switch those numbers and that would be fine with you, right? If I told you Berrettini was seven and Rublev, I mean, Rublev at 16 feels a little low because of how many matches he plays and Mr. February, October, as you coined him in our last (laughs) podcast. But yeah, it's just... Is tier two filled or is no one tier two and it's actually tier three is filled? You know, it almost does feel like there is a there's a lot of parity in that eight through 25 range. And that's why to go full circle here, this end of season, in my opinion, felt more significant is because there was significant jockeying that did happen amongst the rankings. You have Felix now up to number six in the live rankings. That's a career high. Runa obviously sitting at 10, but even a guy like Shapovalov holding on to a top 20 spot. Tiafo getting into the top 20. 
there were some shifts that occurred, and I think they're significant moving forward because now it's like all of these young players have it that much easier in the first third of the schedule. Yeah, but it's going to be the same thing. Like if Felix and Runa, if they don't start 2023 well, if they don't play well in Australia, the the stock is going to go down quickly. Like that's just how it it's it's how it goes, you know? It's going to be there's going to be that was that just another kind of end of year run that isn't going to predict the way the next year is going to start because we just we see that time and time again the off season is a real breakup like you you don't always see that momentum carry over you just don't i think what makes australia so fascinating is there are probably 35 players who look in the mirror and say i have to get to the round of 16 like otherwise it's an abject failure like if tommy paul's a 22nd seed and he plays the 17th seeded Chilich or 16th seeded Chilich for the spot in the round of 16. Isn't that a match Tommy goes into thinking I have to win this match? Like this match is mine. Yeah. I mean, I, I Tommy's definitely itching for a run at a major. Hatching off too, where it's like, I was just the U S open semifinalist. You guys are going to write me off as not a lock to get to the second week of a slam. I always get to second weeks of slams. It's like, it is fascinating, and obviously most fascinating of them all now is where do we hold Holger Runa in that hierarchy as Runa, of course, has been one of, if not now, with this run in Paris. Maybe he surpasses Felix as the player of this post-U.S. Open stretch. Of course, you look for Holger Runa during this run. I mean, the numbers are laughable. Since the end of the U.S. Open, 20-3. and three. Overall, for Runa, quarterfinals of Mets, knocked out three sets by Bublik, but then final Sofia, knocked out by Hussler, wins Stockholm, wins over Nori, Demonauer, and Tsitsipas, which, by the way, that's a tidy three-match run on your way to that Stockholm title. Finals in Basel, knocked out by Felix, then wins this Paris Masters. Of course, the week starts out three sets over Stan. Stan calls him, he says, stop acting like a baby. In the end of that match, can you only imagine 19 years old, one of the greats of the game is saying that to you at the net, and it does not affect him in the slightest. After that, straight set wins over Hercots, Rublev, obviously gets the straight set win over Alcaraz. Alcaraz retiring in that second straight breaker, four and two, second set, excuse me, breaker, four and two over Felix. Then the come from behind, three, six, six, three, seven, five victory over Novak Djokovic. Here's the stat. I want to start this conversation out with. In that 20-3 and three run, Holgaruna holding 91.6% of the time, Gil. Now, the break percentage is just 20.6. And I think we have another case of the extreme Brandon Nakashima version, where it's one of those, wait a second, you should be breaking more than you do. And I don't quite understand how the hold percentage is as high as it is. That said, watching Holgaruna play over the course of this past week in Paris, whether it was the early breakpoint chances he had on Alcaraz to get that early first set break, holds on to it, breaks Felix, third game of the match, set number one, goes up the quick double break in set number two, and then just the defense, the physicality against Djokovic. 
again, the break percentage should be higher than 20.6 with what I'm seeing with my eyes. And yet it's the serve that's gotten him through. He is now a Masters 1000 champion. Here's where we're framing the argument. Is Hogaruna now tier one? A player who, when you look at him, you say by January 1st, 2030, he will have a Grand Slam title. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the same question or two different that's, ones? No, that's that's tier one. That's what Holgaruna tier one. Do you put him now as a moving forward, he's a tier one guy? Right now. Right now. No, no. You you have to you have to do it. He he just won his first masters. It's big. I I think he will be a tier one. I okay. there's no doubt. Um in my mind that look, he's complete. What I've been saying about this. This run is there were two weaknesses for Holger Runa. He he used to break down physically like clockwork. I mean, all the time it was a big problem. It was hurting his career. And his serve was not big. And his serve goes from not big to one of the biggest second serves, like a top five second serve in men's tennis. And the plus one is even more impressive than the serve. Because like Djokovic was getting returns back. Runa's serve is not so big and amazing that he's getting unreturnable service winners aces. That that wasn't what it was. Yet he still had that early service point dominance because his plus one is just that good. Uh, it doesn't matter if you get the return of the backhand, he can still hurt you. It doesn't matter if you hit good depth on the return. He's got this uncanny ability to still attack the plus one ball, even, you know, even on the rise, like his almost half volley forehand is like the best I've seen since Fetter, that like baseline half volley. <laughs> Go that ahead. Particular Sorry, that's particular shot. Spicy. That was spicy. No, Go I know. On. I know. It's just this small detail. Look, it's not a shot that you're going to see that often, but when Runa needs to hit through a baseline half volley, I have not seen anyone do it that well since Fetter. Um, so I don't see any weaknesses. I see weapons check, completeness check, mentality of a champion like really really hungry to to be great check yeah he's gonna be tier one but am i still gonna stigmatize this post us open hardcore stretch of the season heck yeah i'm gonna stigmatize it you gotta do it outside of these couple months you have to so here's the thing why I agree but disagree with you. Yeah, of course he has to do it outside of these months, but he had flashed this level prior to these months. Now, I know he had the seven-match win streak, as you alluded to, following that Roland Garros quarterfinal. That said, wins the title in Munich, semifinals in Lyon, you know, gets through qualifying and plays a really fun match against Casper Ruud in Monte Carlo, fun match against Berrettini in Indian Wells as well. He used those first six months to acclimate himself to the tour and that by the end, he looked this comfortable. I think that's something, dare I say, of a natural progression you see from someone who has always been the best in his age group, former number one junior in the world, the guy who wins junior slam title, I believe at the French Open. I'm blanking on the year, but you know, he rose to the challenger ranks, did it particularly well back in 2021, and you look for him in that 2021 season. Runa went 70 and 29 last year. Played 99 total matches of tennis last season. That's ridiculous for an 18-year-old. And for him to, you know, take the 
60 matches or whatever it was this season he played at the tour level, played uh, 53 overall, 39 and 24 to end the year. It's not surprising to me that this is someone who's playing their best tennis to end the season. Now, to your point, or one of the points you made, I think what is so encouraging about Runa, why I think I have to move him into Tier 1. And for me, when I define Tier 1 players, are you going to win a slam by January 1st, 2030? Do you have wait, to wait, be wait. in? But, but that's, okay, you're, you're tripping me up with that because we're not okay. close to 2030. And you said right now. Yeah, but I'm ready to throw him in that tier right now. I don't care if he doesn't win a slam right now. I think he has to be considered a tier one player moving forward and a player you, I suppose, have to keep a heightened eye on in every slam he plays because you never know when it's going to happen. But it's just like he's on the radar now at every slam he plays. He's going to get one of these. And I just think I'm already prepared to include him in that group because to your point, it's the lack of weaknesses, even before we get to any of the strengths and the development of the strengths. In particular, you mentioned it, his ability to hit his first strike on the rise on either wing. Against Djokovic in the final, Gil, there were moments where there was nothing short of perfection that Novak could do to hurt Holger. And in particular, for him to you know, no, Holger came out a little bit shaky. Djokovic breaks him early on, holds on to that break through the first set, but Holger made him work really hard down the home stretch of that first set. And there's this, I think it was in the 4-3 game, Djokovic hits this on-the-slide forehand down the line winner that curves from outside the alley back in and just paints perfectly on the corner. And that sort of epitomized how good it had to be for Djokovic the rest of the way. And, you know... I like for Holger, we talk about the progression of the first strike, the fact that I mentioned it during this 20-3 and stretch, he's holding 91.6% of the time. His ability to hit his first forehand and make that a weapon and follow it forward, that is why his ceiling is now Tier 1 moving forward. But the underlying skill set that got him back into the match was it just became impossible for Novak to pass him. And I think the match point most epitomized that, the little flick of the forehand, Runa dips at Djokovic's feet, which Djokovic is unable to handle. Runa did that relentlessly in sets two and three and had Novak feeling shaky moving forward. And this is a Novak Djokovic who also hadn't lost an ATP tour match in the post-US Open stretch of tennis. And for Holger to do that at 19, I know it's two out of three sets, but that's tier one tennis. He has played tier one tennis at age 19, and I think that's why I got to put him in it moving forward, where now it's a seven-guy list. Like, it's Medvedev, Zverev, Felix, Sinner, Alcaraz. I still have Tsitsipas in there, and Holgaruna is now in there as well. No, that's not... My tier one does not look like that. It looks like... Incorrect. It, it just looks it, incorrect. It looks like three and a half guys. Uh, I, I am not ready to put S Felix or Runa or I, I might some of the names. Let me tell you mine. It's okay. Nadal, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, and a half. Okay, or, sorry, so half you're of right. Medvedev. So you're right. We're That's having it. two different. We're having two different discussions. You're talking 2023. I'm talking big picture now. And okay. so let's have your it's discussion first. Tier one first. prospect. Yeah, okay, so he's a tier one prospect. We've established that. Let's have your conversation version of this now because as we look at 2023, you bring up Medvedev. 
I think ceiling watch is something that we have to discuss. Have we seen Daniil Medvedev hit his ceiling? And as we look at 2023, and we can work Novak Djokovic, obviously, into this as well, then who are your tier one guys? Let's reestablish. Tier one heading into 2023 for you. These are the contenders at the slams. Who are they, Gil? Okay. Uh, let me know if you want to loop back to the actual final between Runa and Djokovic. But okay. just just so you know, because I do have some thoughts on that. Um, so my tier one heading into next year, and this isn't a prediction really for, is this a prediction for who will end up in tier one or like? No, I'm going into Australia. Tier one can be fluid. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's and let's Djokovic. just, we'll put the immigration stuff aside. You can include Djokovic. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz, Medvedev. I can't put anyone else on, on their level. I think there's a gap. No matter who you give me, I think there's a gap. Like, Let's be clear about Felix, for example. The first strike tennis, the the precision of the first serve, first forehand that he's able to produce indoors is not going to be enough in Australia. He's going to have to be better in rally. He's going to have to be more unpredictable on the second serve. Like, you can't win the same way without those still conditions. Okay. And I love, I love the, t- look, I think the tennis he's playing is just ridiculous, sensational. The best serve plus one. I mean, the first guy who's touched his first serve over this stretch is Runa in that, in that Paris semifinal. And I think you, you It was also his to- second time seeing it in two weeks, which I think matters, especially for someone like Felix, where you're like, you know what? I know the serves you like. I know which forehand you're taking inside out, not to... Yeah. Just to play the role of devil's advocate for Felix, but carry on. Whoever lost that match was getting a pass. Like yeah, you get, you, well you get to be tired right now. Like you get to be <laughs> tired, and whoever wins, it's a bonus. Whoever loses, it was a good run. You get a pass. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, like at this point in time, all four of Felix Ojeda's titles are are on indoor hard court. He goes into the Australian Open, and and he's a tier two contender. He like, he's not a tier one contender to me. Well, what's your case that he's a tier one contender? Well, here's the thing. Again, my tier one is a little bit different than yours. My tier one argument would be for Felix is that to your point, that serve, that forehand, his ability to replicate it, the 93 consecutive holds we saw during this run. Yes, it's perfect conditions, indoor hard court. But we've seen Felix make a semifinal of a hardcourt major before. We saw Felix have success these past two years, really, in Australia because I think there's just a degree of physicality Felix brings. And I think, yes, against Holger Runa, Runa was particularly well-suited to absorb the first strike of that inside-out forehand or the way Runa was hitting his first serve, hitting his spots just so perfectly and hitting the plus one to the open space. He played a perfect match from a tactical perspective against Felix. That said, Felix's serve, his forehand, they're non-negotiables. And Felix, after the, at, through his run through the end of the season now, he's top 10 in hold percentage. Felix is now, for the season, holding 86.1% of the time. Obviously, very much heightened by this year-end stretch. But there's no reason he can't bring that into the start in Australia. And I don't care indoors, outdoors, if you're on a hard court, that serve, that forehand, it's non-negotiable. 
And I do think the case for Felix being Tier 1 would be the dearth of Tier 1 players. Let's say Djokovic isn't playing in Australia. Let's say Nadal is still a little bit banged up with his foot. We just don't know exactly what Nadal is going to look like come Melbourne. Is there anyone else you would definitively say, like, if... I guess here's the thing. Is Felix's best definitively worse than anyone else's best right now? Yeah, I think it's definitive. So when you say his serve and forehand and, you know, his plus one forehand is non-negotiable, I think that's true against almost all players. Um, And in most conditions, I think that's true. Against Djokovic and Medvedev, the returners that they are, the defenders that they are, you're not going to serve plus one them off the court. Like you're not going to win a best of five match like that outside. So as much as I want to say, yes, Felix has gotten close. Sure. But we've seen over the last decade plus that sometimes you can get close, but you need that extra percentage. And I think Felix can get there. But I do need to see a couple things happen. And look, tier two, which is where Felix is for me right now, tier two is great. Like, that's good. I don't want to be anti-Felix here. Um, But in order for him to take the next step, I think I need to see an ability to mix up the second serve. It can't be body every single time. I think the top players are going to take advantage of that. Um, And I think we need to see the backhand, which has looked a lot better this last month, I think we need to see it at that level all the time. And, you know, the point construction and the patience and the defense, I saw that in January and February last year. I need to see that again. Okay. Let me throw one left because we're going to play stock up, stock down a little bit later. We agree Felix is unequivocally stock up after this post-US Open run. How could he not be? Here are the last numbers I would have for you on Felix's season. Holding 86.1% of the time. Maria Sakari asks, Sakari's done it seven consecutive seasons. Felix has improved his hold percentage five consecutive years. And it still does feel like he could be in the 90% club, right? That elite of the elite. The Kyrgios, Isner, Opelka, Berrettini when he's healthy for a full year range of server. So there's still a little bit left, you know, meat on the bone there from a percentage standpoint. The second point would be he broke serve 21.4% of the time. That's a third consecutive season of growth for him. It's a career high for him. And obviously, that's the wing where he could continue to get better. He showed the ability to be better at the end of the la- end, excuse me, of this season. So, if I told you by the end of the year Felix was tier one, could you believe it? Yeah, I could. The athletic base is there to, and you know, when it comes to ninety percent hold percentage, I think you'll find with a deeper, you know, digging even deeper into the statistics, it's the second serve points Mm -hmm. that's really hurting him, not the first serve points. And Top five, first serve win percentage, to your point. There you go. There you go. And I think he's outside the top 50 in second serve. I think he's like 54th or something like that. Um, So that's about, yes, the second serve itself can be better. Also about winning baseline rallies at a higher clip, where I think he's made progress with, with the decision-making, you know, transition game, a little more responsible with the targets on the forehand. Uh, But I think he can still use his athleticism in a more dynamic fashion and improve the, the point construction. 
Yeah, I mean, Felix, 16 quarterfinals, most of any player on the ATP Tour this season. I think it's 15 without ATP Cup, but second most semifinals, second most finals. I think that includes ATP Cup. Third most victories, top five in total, top 10 wins, top five in total, top 20 wins. He deserves his spot in the year-end finals and 22 years old. You know, it's interesting. You know, I do my who cares about the greatest of all time, but are you eliminated from the greatest of all time conversation? I said Felix needed a slam this year to be alive in that race. I'm going to give him Australia. Australia is the (laughs) final slam. He wins Australia. He's still alive. If not, he's eliminated from the GOAT discussion. He enticed me just enough at the end of this year. That said, you mentioned some of your other tier one players, and I do want to get back to the final. Is Runa tier two for you right now, just to finish that conversation? What was the single thing that impressed you most about Runa in Paris? Well, the fact that his weapons stood up to Djokovic, because the same point I just made about Felix against Djokovic and Medvedev, I think Novak and Daniil more than any other players. And yeah, I mean, you can you can throw some other players in there. Obviously, Rafa, Alcaraz, um, especially on clay. Frisky. Yeah, Alcaraz, although the returns in play is not as much of a sure thing true. With, with Alcaraz. Um those guys are the ultimate test of how big are your weapons really, yeah. right? Because with the the return quality, the defensive skills, how good are your weapons really when you play Novak and Medvedev? Are you going to be able to play serve plus one tennis? Those guys are the ultimate test. And in that final, Runa's weapons, no doubt, like they stood up to Djokovic's ability to kind of obviously just defend and absorb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think, well said, the Runa serve as a shotgun. I love Runa's backhand. His backhand return, that ability to take it on the rise, that ability to hit that short angle cross-court passing shot is absolutely special. Uh, He's flexible on the forehand, and he takes it on the rise a little earlier than you expect. He can flatten it out, but he can hit the high and heavy defensively. He's tier one prospect, big picture. Let me so then with the framework of my tier one, you're gonna win a slam by January first, twenty thirty. My list is still. I think Medvedev gets another one. Nadal and Djokovic don't qualify, obviously. Medvedev gets another one. Zverev. I still have Tsitsipas on the list. We'll get to him in a second. Alcaraz, Sinner, Felix, and I think I have to have Runa in tier one now. Do you agree with those seven? Yeah. Anyone you'd kick out or at? Well, um, it's part of your contract. You have to be honest. Yeah, uh, I I know that you've expressed some. You're on the fence a little bit on Pass. I would agree. Uh, Zverev, we we talked about this off air. When you have an injury like that, big you man might, feet, not good. Not good. You might not get back. That's a possibility. You might not get back. It's just. Again, I have I have no information. We have no data on what Zverev is going to look like when he comes back. Zero. But it's just it's possible you may never get back to where you were. I don't know. Some people, some scholars have argued you're an expert on tall people and feet. So we maybe you <laughs> do it. Yeah. Maybe what does do. that mean? Yeah, maybe you do. I mean, when people think Gil Gross, they think man, that's a man who knows all about tall people. With that said, um, I mean. 
I'm trying to think. Yeah, he's tier one for me. I, he was exceptional. It was the defense in the second set. So you said you wanted to get some thoughts on Djokovic in the final. This is where I want yeah. to offer you to them. I don't think Djokovic played a bad match. That's why I'm so oh. high on Runa coming out of this. No, I think the first set and a half Djokovic played, uh, maybe the first set in particular, Djokovic played well. Yeah, but that's not enough to win a match. This was a, I, I thought <laughs> well, it was a- sometimes it is, but that's what I'm saying is Runa made him work. He did, but you look at, first of all, this came down to taking opportunities. You know, Djokovic won two less games than Runa, but uh, but won like seven more total points. I hate the total point stat. I usually throw it out. But usually when we see the total point stat, it's because you get like a six love, yeah, six, seven, six, seven deal. And it's like, all right, one set outlier that skewed the stat. Get out of here with total points. In this case, it literally displays that Djokovic was in Runa's service games consistently. Runa was not in Djokovic service games. You look at the break point stats, Runa, three of three, Break points converted. Djokovic, two of 12. And then this is the key, Grusky. When you break down how, you know, what went down in these points, you realize this was a crazy outlier performance on the Djokovic mistakes. Uh, start of the second set, Novak had love 40. And this is when it looked like, oh, this is Novak cruise control in this, in this final. He had love 40. How did Runa save those three set points? Djokovic missed a routine backhand pass long. Djokovic missed a second serve return right to his forehand, where I think he was just caught off guard at actually the fact that Runa took some pace off of it. But routine forehand, second serve return. Novak had an overhead on the next point, didn't finish it. You look at the game that he was broken at 3-1, up 30-15, up 30-love. That volley was confounding that Djokovic didn't put away at 30-15. It was a floater. It was poor. Yeah, you look at the six break points at 6-5, where uh, Runa saved all six break points to close out the match. Three of them, tremendous by Holger. You know, serve plus one, those weapons that I talked about being awesome um, and standing up against Novak's return in defense. The other three, Novak mistakes. I mean, routine forehand in there. Um, I mean... It was it was crazy how many opportunities Djokovic missed with just errors, uh, uncharacteristic, weird errors. Well, this gets back to a point I made earlier. Holger was making him think, like just overextending on every forehand, didn't need to go for that much wide, didn't need to go for that much depth. And that to me was the testament to Holger, who was everywhere, who hits that on the slide forehand, elevated up the line. It's a great clay court shot, and he brings it onto these indoor hard courts with how well he moves. It was the neutralizer. He also played Djokovic pretty well backhand to backhand. So it's twofold. Agreed. You're right, but I'm right, and we're not disagreeing for the record. Part of it was Novak started spraying because he did get a little trigger happy. He did feel a little bit more pressure that I don't know if I'm going to be able to put away the volley because this guy dips the pass pretty low at my feet. And that coaxed him into uncharacteristic errors. That said, for me, the key word is coaxed, is Runa made him earn it. And that's why, like, to make Novak earn it in your first Masters 1000 final, 7-5 in the third, when you're right, Djokovic had the majority of the opportunities, you're not supposed to be able to do that at 19. Yeah, look, it's a relationship. Uh, Like, tennis matches are not in isolation. So 
I I give Runa plenty of credit, and you're right that when it was time to when it was time to stay very very solid from the back of the court and use the legs to extend rallies and make things tough on Djokovic, Runa was absolutely willing to do that. With that said, like you look at that volley um, at at three one that I referred to, I can't credit Runa's speed. It's just it's a shocking ball to not put away. Remember the backhand drop shot which yeah. was one of the break points. Runa's way off the court. I don't care how fast you are. The speed of Runa didn't force that miss. Sometimes you just got to look at it. And it was one of the days in the office for Novak to me. And this is going to happen like one or two times a year. There's going to be a match like that if you're as good as Novak. If you're worse than Novak, it's going to be a lot more than one or two times where there were just a bunch of big spots where you messed up. And to me, that was just this match. It happens. Yeah. I mean, here's the last stats I'll give you. Runa now, nine top 10 wins on the season, five of them coming this week. This is your best run of the year, right? Five top ten, five straight top 10 players. Name a more impressive run. Uh, Alcaraz Madrid. I think other than that. Is that where he beat Djokovic, Nadal back-to-back? And then he crushed Zverev in the yeah, final. Like, yeah, you, can't, you can't forget that. <laughs> just embarrassment. Yeah, that's okay. Ooh. It's a good argument. I'll get, I concede that they're both in the discussion. Here's the real thing. Those nine top 10 wins for Runa. He and Alcaraz have the most top 10 wins this season. Yeah, that's that's awesome. nuts. Just just crazy. And, you know, again, Runa, 11 top 20 wins. And you look for him now, again, 39 and 24 at the tour level this season, winning 62% of his matches at as a 19-year-old. He's into the top 10 after being outside the top 100 to start the year. What a ridiculous season. On the other hand, Novak Djokovic ends his year as one of just two players to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Djokovic, six top 10 wins on the season. That's tied for fifth overall amongst top 50 players. 14 top 20 wins, though. That's second behind only Alcaraz. Djokovic still finishes with four titles overall on the season. I mean, we discussed this last time. Overall, only one slam, so in theory, it's a, and I put this in quotes, a lost year for Novak because it felt like he certainly could have won Australia, certainly could have won the U.S. Open. That said, I mean, it's just stock hold, right? I don't even have a Djokovic question. You're the three at tennis show. Do you have any final 2022 takes on Djokovic? Yeah, level-wise, this was a really good year. Um, Yeah. Are you willing? Are you willing to just throw Monte Carlo out? Just call that like a comeback kind of ramp up event. Can we throw that out of the picture? Yeah, of course. Okay, so let's start at Madrid, where he started to look better, and he lost to Alcaraz. Whoa, 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 whoa! You're <clears throat> throwing out Belgrade. That's unacceptable. No, no, no I'm talking. I'm off- just kidding. I just messing with you. Go <laughs> no, on. I know, I know, I know. But I'm talking about. Uh, I sh- yeah, Madrid should be the first series. No, I agree. I think Dubai. I definitely don't count. Until he has three tournaments under his... Yeah, Madrid Masters was the true symbolic, hey, I'm playing this through Roland Garros, I'm playing Wimbledon, let's roll. I agree. Okay, so now let's look at big events from Madrid. Doesn't win Madrid, wins Rome. Doesn't win Roland Garros, wins Wimbledon. So now we are, we're two for four. On (laughs) (laughs) uh, the next... Masters he plays is is here in in Paris. So now he's he's two for five. Basically, if he wins the ATP Finals, if he wins in Turin, he will have won half the big events he played 
Yeah, that's that's a really good framework. See, this is why Three of Tennis Show works with you as the host because that's <laughs> how you do need to frame his season. And statistically, again, top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Novak Djokovic just cranking out one of those elite statistical seasons. Of course, you look for him uh, held 87.2% of the time. That's above his career average. Now, the break percentage dipped, but it dipped to 283 the average ATP tour player here in uh, top 50 player, excuse me, here in the 2022 season, average break percentage is 22.9. So he's still 6% better than your average top 50 player. And it felt like it was a down year for him as a returner. Yeah, like I think his peak level is still unequivocally tier one. I think he is the favorite of every grand slam he is in the main draw of. The question is just how many slams will he be in the main draw of, right? Because to your point, yeah, he. I mean, you mentioned the two out of five big matches, uh, big events he's played. He's won. Who were the three losses to? Alcaraz in Madrid. Alcaraz goes on to win it. Nadal in Paris. Nadal goes on to win it. And that match, you know, again, when Djokovic comes back in the second set, you're like, oh my god, he might come back. He might beat Nadal for a second consecutive year in Roland Garros. Uh, there was right. That was a brief thought everyone had for a moment in that match. And then he loses to Runa in Paris, like in 7-5 in the third. His three losses were to the three title winners. The road still goes through Novak. You either beat him or he wins the tournament, right? Great point. Yeah. yeah that would be the framework I would have as well. To add to it, do you th- is he the favorite entering Turin? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there are questions. You know, Medvedev, the, the loss to Dimonor, I in some ways I get it stylistically, but... You're looking at a guy who's got two, you know, he had two top 10 wins to his name, if I'm not mistaken. He had never beaten a top five player. Demonor's not, has traditionally not been a dangerous player to the likes of a Daniil Medvedev um, in terms of, you know, tier one players, you know, big wins. So that was an interesting one. Now it's twice with Medvedev where I've thought, all right, here we go. He's about to get going. Uh, the first time was Cabos. I don't know if we talked after that. I think we may have where where we both agreed. It's like, here comes the season of Medvedev. Yeah. It didn't happen. No, it's like the calendar's August. All right, he's going to win four titles, five? Yeah, because there are some questions. Then he looks amazing in Cabos. It's like, oh, here we go. Yeah. But no, he, he loses to Kyrgios. He loses to Tsitsipas. He loses to Kyrgios again. Now, once again, he looked so good in Astana before retiring against Novak Djokovic. I was coming into this Paris Masters thinking that, you know, it was between him and Djokovic. It was a little surprising for me to see him drop that one against Dimonor. So we look for Daniil Medvedev. I'm glad you bring him up. Medvedev, 45-16 and 16 overall this season. Obviously lost most of the clay court season due to injury. That said, for Medvedev, he still ultimately reaches the round of 16 in Paris. You mentioned it. The losses to Kyrgios round one for him in Canada. Tsitsipas, Cincinnati semifinals. Kyrgios, fourth round U.S. Open. Here's my question. You look for Medvedev. Again, 45-16 and 16 this year. He's still top 10 in wins. Still, again, him and Djokovic, top 10 in both hold and break percentage. The only two guys you can say that about. For Daniil Medvedev, though, statistically, last three seasons, 2020, he holds 86.3% of the time. 21, it's 87%. This year, it's 86.9%. I really should go back to 2019, where he was 842 but that was really the first year of the ascension. You look at the last four seasons of break percentages, 
Now, those are all top 10 numbers, and Daniil Medvedev is still going to be one of those guys who's top 10, top 15 always in both hold and break percentage. That's how well-rounded the skill set is. My question is, is this Daniil Medvedev's season, uh, ceiling, excuse me, does he have another gear to go to, or is this really it? This is prime Medvedev. This is what we're getting moving forward, because I do think, to some extent, there has been a weak, I don't want to say a weakness, but how you play Daniil Medvedev is clear. You just got to go for it. There's got to be some extent of, look, I have to create against your forehand. I'm, I know you're going to come up with these ridiculous on-the-run passing shots. You're going to use your length exceptionally well, but I'm betting you can't keep that up in the face of my relentless aggression. And it takes really high-quality aggression, obviously, to pull that game plan off. But the avenue's there. And I, I just do wonder, is this the Medvedev ceiling? Yeah, I've been saying that he's not getting any better since he won the U.S. Open. Like, it has long been my opinion that Medvedev is, you know, amazing, uh, a problem for for so many, like, up there with the best in the world. But do I see him, like, getting a lot better? Absolutely not. I I just don't see where it comes from because you look at some of the weaknesses, uh, the transition game being awkward and unreliable for example. That's not getting better. You see his technique? It's not getting yeah. better. It's I do think not. he changed his forehand a little bit. I think it comes over the top a little bit more than it used to. Comes over the top like like he's... Uh, like I think he's following he, through a little bit more, I should say, over the shoulder. Like it looks like he really is trying to drive through that ball over the top of it more than it, perhaps he used to. Or at least that was the adjustment I saw post-US Open. Instead of like brushing up more. Yeah, exactly. Instead yeah. of pulling out of every forehand. Yeah. So uh, the forehand is another thing that it's yeah. that I've I've always thought like his plus one forehand, it's kind of a weakness. Like he's not great at creating with it. It's good when error. he has so much time, but he needs all of the time. Yeah. He also needs this fast surface, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't hit. He's not hitting through a fast opponent on clay when, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you make a deep return his plus one ball doesn't scare you because there's a lack of power there. So th- then you ask yourself, is that getting better? No. Pr- like, he, it, I think it's a physical thing with his baseline power. Um, and it just looks like he's kind of got that wiry frame. He's not going to get much stronger. So I don't think the baseline power, especially off the forehand, because he does hit his backhand relatively big um, off the forehand, I don't think that's getting better either. So do I think Medvedev is who he is? Yeah, I do think he is who he is. I think for Daniil Medvedev, the next question would be, is this player still a tier one guy? And the answer is yes. That said, you do start to wonder with a guy like Holger Runa, who it's just a little bit easier for him to create from the center of the court than it is for, for Medvedev. That said, you do feel like defensively he sort of has the skill set that Medvedev has, can pass very well in the outer thirds of the court. You know, again, the best version of Runa maybe can do a few more things than Daniil Medvedev. Obviously, we saw what Carlos Alcaraz has been able to do. He has proven he is a tier one guy moving forward. It's just, you know, the Medvedev window, it really did feel like from the end of 2020, even through that semifinal at the U.S. Open that year till Australia this year, it was kind of him, 
healthy Zverev, Medvedev, uh, Djokovic, Nadal. Like, those were your four guys where you're like, all right, one of the four of them's probably going to win the slam unequivocally. That list is a little bit longer now. And for Daniil Medvedev, I still think he is on that list. And I don't mean to diminish when we say he's hit his ceiling, uh, that that's a bad thing because he's still six foot six. He still moves like a zombie. He still has a serve of someone who's six foot six and can generate free points for himself in that way. That said, there is an ascending list of players who, as they get older, can continue to A, match his physicality, but then B, maybe create a little bit better from the center. I think there's two things, and let me uh, let me echo Please. you on the thing that his the ceiling is not bad. The ceiling won a major. Yeah, so he's I don't won know. a major exactly. It's like Andy already snuck in his one. Exactly, um, and and he can win another by not improving. Right? It's always this. Sometimes we have this thing like you got to. And look, if you want to be like the big three, yes, you have to keep improving. Uh, but sometimes we have this thing like. You got to get better. You got to get better. You got to get better. Or it's like, no, maybe you're fine and you just need to keep doing what you're doing. And that is going to be good enough maybe to win another couple slams. Um, so that's a possibility. I think there are two things, though, stylistically that bother Medvedev. Elite net rushing mm-hmm. on fast surfaces mm-hmm. and elite speed on slow surfaces. And that, I think, can com- continue to be a problem. Obviously, with the speed on slow surfaces, like, you know, we kind of saw it with Demonor, Medvedev, besides the first serve, there's really no awesome offensive weapon there after you get past the first serve um, on, on slower surfaces. So sometimes he can't really hit through or finish points. And then the elite net rushing, well, that kind of takes away what he tries to do defensively. And of course, that works better on fast courts. So that's kind of where I'm seeing Medvedev right now. Yeah, I mean, again, he's not in the top ten in or top five in both top ten wins nor top twenty wins. He's just outside the top eight in terms of most victories this season. But he also missed most of the clay court Masters events where he would have had the opportunity to add to those totals. Again, if this is his ceiling, he's still tier one for the next two, three years, maybe even. But with the emergence of guys like Alcaraz and Runa and obviously Sinner Felix have been in that mix for a couple of years now. The window has shortened for Daniil Medvedev to maybe be the unequivocal number one. That said, he did reach number one this year, and there's absolutely a lot uh, of merit to that. We do this debate every time you come on the show, so we're doing it quickly. And by the way, we said Ceiling Watch was the name of the segment here. It is. We're looking. Have you hit your ceiling? That's the purpose here of this segment, folks. I sent Gil an outline for a reason. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels, whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the coco cg1 at newbalance.com ceiling watch again we're doing it very quickly stefano Tsitsipas. it was a fantastic semi-final match for Tsitsipas against novak djokovic and i think when you look for Tsitsipas here down the season's home stretch he was pretty good Post-U.S. Open. Final in Astana, formerly Nur Sultan. Shout out to a rebranding. Finals of Stockholm. Yeah, loses 7-6 in the third to Chorch in Vienna, but I don't throw a 7-6 in the third match against anyone. And then 7-6 in the third against Djokovic in Paris. 
it was the sort of rebound he needed post-disgusting Daniel Galan loss in that first round of the U.S. Open. And when we say ceiling watch here for Stefano Tsitsipas, again, it's almost Felix-esque. You know the non-negotiables, the serve, the forehand, his ability to dictate with those two shots, his physicality moving forward. They're non-negotiable weapons for him. They will allow him to compete in every season moving forward. He's second in total quarterfinals, most wins on this ATP season of everyone. He's into the year-end finals. What is it, the fourth consecutive year-end finals, I think, for Pass, which for a 24-year-old, I mean, it's either the third or fourth, and that's ridiculous uh, for a guy who's, by the way, already won the year-end finals. That said... I don't think he's hit a ceiling because it's just like the backhand return, even if it only gets 3% better, that 3% can make a difference. Him improving his slice as a defensive shot, that can make a massive difference. I still think there's enough low-hanging fruit on the tree. I think the fact that he's still 24 years old, Gil, I watch him play that Djokovic match. I watch the physicality. People don't talk enough, Gil, about Tsitsipas as a mover. He's a really good mover. And his ability to get his his racket, his forehand outside the ball when he's on the run and just like the strength with which he holds his ground when he makes contact, people don't talk enough about it. I don't think he's hit a ceiling. That's why he's going to hold on to tier one because I watch his level in certain moments, the Astana final, the Paris uh, semis, and I just remain compelled. Like I know the weakness is there, but so does he. Yeah, um, definitely hasn't hit a ceiling. I agree with a lot of your points. Um, the, I did the Hulk episode recently on, on Monday Match Analysis where mm-hmm. I get to use each player only once in terms of different attributes. Pass was my guy for forehand defense. So, yeah. Really? I, yes, Interesting. He was. Talk me through that, please, because I agree, but I want to hear your thinking. It is so hard to attack him into the deuce corner because, first of all, yes, he moves well. Yes, he is quick. But when he gets there he gets so much on the ball. I mean, it's basically what you just said with him getting around the ball, but like his well, that's strength it right there. on it's the, the run. That's exactly it. I'm glad you put it like that. It's the depth he generates, right? It's just like, all right, it's neutral. Yeah, the depth or the speed, right? The heaviness, because Medvedev, right? Medvedev's a guy who gets a lot of depth, but wouldn't really get the weight of shot mm-hmm. on that kind of weight exact of shot, same ball. That's it, yeah. Yeah, uh, but the, the crazy thing is backhand defense He's not even in the top 20. Like, he doesn't defend his backhand well. So he's got a totally, like, lopsided thing going on there with, you know, with his defense. Um, Djokovic hits this on-the-slide backhand cross-court. I think it's on the 5-4 point in the third set breaker where he hits it on-the-slide cross-court so perfectly. And I was just like, oh, yeah. I was just like, that's no bad. It was just like one of those moments where you're like, oh, like – I forgot that you're a superhuman <laughs> and like you, you're like, I need this one right now. Okay. I'm going to summon it because it's time. Yeah. Um, but it's like, again, I asked you to do it quick. Do you come out of 2022 feeling better or worse about CT pass or the same? You can say the same. Worse. I think with, with each passing year where some of these things don't get better and don't get addressed, I, I think I, I say worse because you know, we have been talking about the same things with his game for a long time now. And, you know, also there's just been some volatility with 
the the way he competes right emotionally which i hadn't actually seen until until this year so there's even been some regression by the way loved 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 how he competed in that semi-final in paris i was delighted with that uh but there have been a lot of matches curios wimbledon us open against galan uh the final against chorich in cincinnati uh, a lot of situations where i've just been kind of eyebrow raised it's like mm, that wasn't very mentally tough right there so that's kind of a new issue i i hope that's behind him but yeah i would have to say with another year gone by a lot of these same issues lingering i would say i feel worse i feel the same and because of that i feel worse because it's like it didn't change it's still yeah. the same and that inherently is stocked down all right we're going to rapid fire through the rest of these because i know you've had a busy day making the media rounds the Alcaraz retirement in the quarterfinals, kosher, unkosher? Kosher. If you're telling me Carlos Alcaraz has a mentality that's, look, I either play or I don't. I'm not out here tanking four points. Like, if, if that's your mentality, look, I get it. If you only have an on and an off and no in between, I get it. Um, and obviously, he had a... a was it a strain or a tear in his oblique? I think a tear. He had a tear. So he felt that, yes, he could have tanked for four points. Totally respect the fact that he doesn't want to tank for four points. See, if Alcaraz was taller, you know the exact terminology, but you don't specialize on six foot. You're a six foot six expert, as we established earlier. Look, I liked our terminology when we talked about it in or when we were at dinner on Sunday night. Um, and obviously I'm going to have Westoff use the quacks here because it's like, do you think Carlos Alcaraz is a He's not. Like, <laughs> we all – like, no one doubts Carlos Alcaraz's tenacity, his desire to be competing through any sort of physical ailment. Did you watch his run through the U.S. Open? It's like he's earned the benefit of the doubt. He there There's no doubt about that. Now, could he have done the three points? Yes. It wasn't worth it for him. It was you win. I'm off. Like, I'm sorry. I don't have anything left in this tank, to, uh, in my tank. Like, you win, Holger. I can see. I apologize. I'm robbing you of that match point moment, but you're moving on. And so, um, no, I agree. I have no problems with it. I don't think it was unkosher at, in the slightest. Nevertheless, I know it was being discussed. Uh, let's quickly go through some post-US Open stock up, stock down. I'll throw some players at you. You tell me how you're feeling given the tennis they played here during this run. Um, let's start with Hoopy Hercots. Stock up, stock down. For the year? Sure. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. For the year. Sorry. Uh, stock up. Way less bad losses uh, because, you know, last year – I'm going to go purely results-based here. Last year, there were a couple of great runs, and you saw that reflected in his ranking. I just found it to be a much more even year for Hercots, where, yes, you know, you didn't have your Miami, um, you didn't have your Wimbledon, but you were in the mix every single week, and you weren't, you weren't taking as many bad losses. To me, that's a step in the right direction. See, I'm stocked down because I don't. Th I think this is the peak for Hoopy. You know, to be in the mix for the ATP Finals for a second consecutive season, it felt like this year's Wimbledon was right there. Especially when Berrettini, Chilich test out with COVID, it's just like this is it. Like this is the window. This is where you got to be able to take advantage. I just can't see his stock going any higher than it is this season. So I think I'm a little bit stocked down on him moving forward. Chapeau played much better tennis down the home stretch of this season. You stock up, stock down. Stock way up. And and this is a case of 
where I don't mind putting a lot of stock into the indoor hardcore stuff because it's not the results that caught my eye with Chapo. It's that he was playing completely differently. Like he was visually different. And if he can just, and I thought it was positive changes, like the body control, keeping the head still, controlling the follow through, staying on the ground. Like he looked completely different. It seems like Peter Polanski just got to him and was just like, all right, we're going to teach you how to chill when you play tennis. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, just relax, dude. Just like, <laughs> yeah, just like all you have to just focus. All I'm asking for you to do is focus. If you focus, you'll win. Yeah. So I, I'm like just really pumped uh, based on what I saw from him uh, in that final stretch. And a lot of coaches have like tried to reel him in, including Mikhail Yuzhny. And uh, it, it seems like old Peter's finally done it. But I think that's really well see. said. No, I agree. Stock up. Um, I don't know how to frame this correctly. It's a full season discussion in November. But are you team RBA Carreño Busta or team Schwartzman Dimitrov? Because Schwartzman Dimitrov for the last decade would have been the bigger names. But I just like, I guess I'm, all right, let's put it like this. Two stock down players, Schwartzman and Dimitrov. Do you agree? Yes. I just think it's just like, how are they going to be in the top 20 ever again? Yeah, especially for Diego. Um, cause, cause Diego, I, I don't think there were any moments for him this year where he looked great, where Dimitrov did have a couple, uh, he, you know, uh, wasn't it a good run in Paris and, uh, Indian Wells, I think he made the semifinals. So there were some, there was something there, uh, at, at the very least, uh, but Schwartzman, not so much. Yeah. RBA, Carreño Busta has caught fire post Wimbledon now. Two years in a row. Cranial Boost and RBA, two of 10 players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. They're just good. Like, they are the new veteran. When you think of the veterans over the year, like what Songa was for so long or what Ferrer was for so long, maybe not quite to that extent, but towards the back half of their excellence, the Simones of the world, what Schwartzman's been for the past five seasons. That's Cranial Boost and RBA. It's like, you want your two, oh, the 30-year-olds are still pretty good. It's them. And and we need to assign a month to RBA. No, we need to give an award like the – it's not the Joe Wilfred. Who's like perennially like 13th? I don't want to call it the John Isner Award because they're better than Isner. But it needs to be like that guy who's you know like, oh, it's the 17th seed. You know, the 17th seed award of the year. Like who was the the best 17th seed of the year? And it's Carreño Busta where you're like, you're not top 16, but you're a seed. Yeah, but he, you know, he did have, he, he won that master. He won that big title, you know, yeah. in Canada. Uh, but I was going to say though, RBA, you don't want to play him in January. Like that is that is a deadly January player. He comes look his jawline is always so fresh in January. You're just like this is a guy who spent his time on the elliptical. Like this Dude, guy got like, after it. Yeah, it's like I need to know what he does in December because RBA in January is like a top ten player. Like my goodness, and look at the stats. Like I know that's that might sound weird if you're not like. If you haven't taken notice of that, the man, I mean, Doha, ATP Cup, killer. No, if it's if it's a week, no one's watching the tour, RBA is winning the title. Let me just <laughs> lock that in right now. Um, highest ranked Italian to end 2023, Sinner, Berrettini, Musetti. Easily Sinner. 
I thought he had a better year than the results showed. I think we both agree. Yeah. Has has to build up his body and start to stay healthy. It's that kind of thing where like a lot of, you know, I, I see a lot on social media, like players get injured all the time and it's like, oh, so unlucky, so unlucky. It's like, maybe it's not unlucky and he, you know, just has some progress to make on his body uh, so that he can withstand the rigors of the tour. Um, n- not to say some people don't, you know, aren't developed and work hard and they have bad genes and they get injured a lot. That happens. I think, I think Berrettini's that guy. Um, but a sinner just needs to stay healthier and needs to get stronger in the legs still, even though he's way stronger than he was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it's a tough question. Berrettini's the one where because he missed so much of the season, you just feel like there's such low hanging fruit for him to pick up quick pockets of points. Sinner was the only guy alongside of Nadal to make the second week of every slam. So those are some big caches for him to have to defend. A lot of quarterfinals on Sinner's resume this season as well. So he just has a lot of points to defend everywhere. That said, I would still very much go with Yannick Sinner. I agree with you. I don't think it's that tough. All right, here's a tough one. Which American man ends 2022 with the highest stock? I've thought about this question a good amount, and I just think the boring answer is probably the right answer with Taylor Fritz because you think about, yeah, like you also, you think about the season and there's a tendency or you want to say, oh, this was this miracle season where he, everything went right for him. That's not true. Everything did not go right for him. He had injury issues. He had, you know, the foot thing where he missed every clay court masters except for Monte Carlo. He was in a walking boot after Wimbledon and that probably disrupted what he was able to do in the lead up uh, of the US Open. Uh, He didn't get points for his Wimbledon run to the quarterfinals. All of these things went wrong and Fritz still finishes ninth in the race. So how are you gonna tell me that he's not gonna have an even better year next year? That's a very good point to make. Fritz, one of just five players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Here's the thing. Tommy cranked out so many quarterfinals. And Tommy Paul, 10 quarterfinals this season. He ranks tied for seventh in terms of most quarterfinals on the year. His stock probably jumped the most in the second half of the season. I mean, Tiafo obviously, with his run in New York. It's still probably Francis. Which he followed up so well, by the way. Quarterfinals of Paris, just very quietly. Um, yep. Good wins for him over Demonauer. A good win over Draper in round number two in particular. <sighs> Corda, really good October tennis. couple of finals for him as well. You pick one of those four guys, and it can't be Korda because he was too banged up and it was too up and down throughout the year. Nakashima, by the way, I apologize for not giving you a shout-out. Brandon, he wins his first title in San Diego, as we've alluded to. His whole thing served like 90% of the time to end this season. Um, I probably go with Ben Shelton, who just won his first challenger in Charlotte. <laughs> um, no. This is a really tough question. With that, I'm definitely going to use another sh- – it's probably its own segment. It's its own podcast just recapping the American men. 
it's mm, is it Tiafo because he's up to 19? No, it's not Tiafo. It's Tommy. I think it's Tommy. That's the answer I want to give because it just feels like this is so replicable for Tommy, where everything is just so smooth, so simple. It translates across surfaces. You just feel like you can pencil him into every quarterfinal now because of how well things have clicked from him uh, for him from a floor perspective, match in, match out. And it's just like, I thought he could be a top 25 player. He's been that now, not just for a month, but like for six months. So I actually think his stock rose more than anyone down. I, I think my answer is Tommy, but it's probably Taylor. Yeah, I would put Francis above uh, above Tommy because of the serve. I think okay. the the bigger first serve is kind of the X factor because they're actually pretty similar in the way they they go about their businesses. The the backhands, Tommy and Francis, very similar. Both of them with the the net play kind of being a a good measuring stick of where they're at. Always, you know, they're just so good at net, and they they need that, and they've added that. Um, the thing is with with Francis and Tommy, I can't really think of any recent top ten players who have actually played like them to make yeah. the top ten. Like they're kind of thing where okay, they they don't really have the physicality to hang with the best baseliners in the world in terms of like I you know they can't be grinders. They don't have that. Um, so, but they also don't have the massive, the massive offense off the ground. So they need to come forward. They need to come forward, which is fine. But then, you know, they're not huge. Francis is closer to a big server, but still not one of the best servers in the world. It's a prototype that I love to watch. I think they're two of the most entertaining players. And I think that, you know, I see them both as top 20. But as I try to think of, oh, like who has shown that that is a top 10 player, I actually can't really think of anyone. Corda. Um, no, I think Taylor's the answer. I'm going to go back to the basics. You were right. It is Taylor. His stock's the highest. He might get into the year-end finals, and he won Indian Wells. And it's just like you still feel like physically he could get stronger. He could get faster. That said – no questions about his weapons. No questions about his actual ability to strike a tennis ball. Yeah, that was the right answer. But we also got as much of that as out of that as I needed. All right, last two questions for you. Biggest ATP final snub. Are there any snubs? Who would you pick for this? It's definitely Nick Kyrgios. Okay, make the Come case. Come on. Yeah, well, let's – I mean, first of all, win percentage – which is just, it remains like a really un, a strangely underrated stat mm-hmm. is ha- what percent of matches you win. Yeah. Uh, but but <laughs> like people don't really look at it. Anyway, uh, 77%. Yeah, so let's, let's do an experiment here. Let's look at Taylor Fritz who snuck into the last spot and let's see his win percentage. 68.9, uh, I have it in front of me. Uh, 69.8. Okay, maybe I'm. I'll learn how to read eventually. Go on. All right, uh, that's kind of where I go with it. And now, like, what about what about how Kyrgios did against top players? His record against top ten. Uh, I'd be willing to bet it's super, well, super. Well, you look impressive. in terms of top ten total wins this season. Kyrgios has six. That's a top five number. 
He's six and four. Yeah, it's very good. So that's the guy tennis wise who isn't there, who, you know, Wimbledon finalist. I mean, mm-hmm. he if he if he played a more full schedule, um, he would be there. So there are three players on my list of potential snubs, three guys who have a case that thinking I should be in this event. Kyrgios is the first, and you made the case perfectly. Kyrgios, fourth in win percentage, 78.7 is what I have in front of me. The other one I would add to that list is the guy who's fifth on that list, Yannick Sinner, 74.6%. The other, you know, the guy who, along with Nadal, the only player to make the second week at every slam this season, you look for Sinner 10 quarterfinals overall in the year. That's a top seven number. And, you know, again, a guy who's in the mix in terms of 47 victories. That's also a top eight number. He's one of the 10 players, top 25 in both hold and break percentage. I do think he was that good all year long. Now, his record against the top 10 is atrocious. That was the glaring hole in his resume. But in terms of best of the rest, like you're telling me Taylor Fritz is an alternate before and into this tournament before we see Yannick Sinner. That doesn't feel kosher to me. I think I think Sinner, I think Kyrgios, and then the last one is Cam Nori. Just because you forget, you know, Nori made the semifinals of Wimbledon this season. Nori, 11 quarterfinals this year. That's tied for fourth most on the ATP Tour. Nori, 49 wins. That's tied for fourth most with Rublev on the ATP Tour. You count those Wimbledon points. You know, can you say definitively Andre Rublev had a better season than Cam Nori? Like, he had a, probably had a better season. I don't think it was definitively better those would be I the agree. three guys I would point to. Would be no all di- no disrespect to Hubi Hurkats, who I think Hubi Hurkats was the 11th best player this season. That feels about right to me. I think Nori's better than the 14 where he ended up. I think Sinner's better than the 15 he ended up, and obviously Nick Kyrgios better than the 22nd he ended up. Those are my three guys who I'd say you're the snubs. Yeah, the the Sinner thing, it almost doesn't make sense. It's almost like, was there a counting error here? Yeah, no, Uh, I'm just like, do you know how many quarterfinals he made at big events? Like, just pencil him in. He was in the quarters. That just, it tells you how these rankings work. Yeah. Um, It rewards, you know, those couple matches at the end there have a bigger swing in points, obviously. Like, you know, the difference between being a a semifinalist and uh, the winner is a way bigger difference than losing in the first round versus the third round, uh, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's uh, I guess the difference between Fritz and Sinner, and I haven't broken it down scientifically, is is basically the it's basically the Indian Wells. Yeah, no, that that is it. That Fritz had the significant title run at Indian Wells, and getting those points on his resume that's ultimately what separates them. Although, again. Wimbledon points would have played an interesting neutralizer, but I think those are the the snubs. So then my final question for you, who has the most out on the line going into the ATP finals? Who does this final year-end event matter to most? My first And quickly, instinct? I apologize before. Right now, the field is Nadal, Tsitsipas, Rude, Medvedev, Felix, Rublev, Djokovic, and Fritz in for the injured Alcaraz. Carry on. Um... Do you believe in the Netflix conspiracy that Alcaraz pulled out so Fritz could get in? No, but have you uh, have you done the math on Nori with with the Wimbledon points? I just did the addition, and it, he would have been that last guy. I think yeah. if Wimbledon counted, he would have missed it by one. Instead, he misses it by uh, four. 
It's brutal. Or five, actually. No, he's yeah. the one who, like, I think he has to be included in the snubs list. Yeah, I think I think because of the Wimbledon thing, I think you're spot on. And it would have been a situation where, you know, he would have been on the inside of yeah. the, the eight for most of the year instead of the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, my instinct was to say uh, Medvedev. Uh, you know, I think mm-hmm. Rude... So Rude has definitely struggled the most post U.S. Open, but honestly, I don't think anybody cares, or I don't know how much he <laughs> cares. Like, it's fine that he's struggling. Um, you know, Titi Pass, he's already done well. I, I don't think it's him. Nadal, there's zero stakes. Rublev, man, it would be such a bonus if he made a statement, but... That's what I'm saying. When Rublev looks at this field and sees Tsitsipas, who he's played so many times, and Felix and Fritz, isn't he's like, I can get two wins against you guys? I think it's Medvedev. So <laughs> I think. So Novak, not Novak. No, um, Novak's the favorite. I think we agree there. Yeah. I think you know he hasn't won it since 2015. So I think he's probably like, all right, like clock is ticking, time to win another one of these things. You know, uh, it's just the majors are so outsized in terms of priority at this point for Novak that I don't think it can be Novak because I, I just feel like this kind of title still is more valuable and means more to some other guys. I can't say it's Djokovic because it's just the the – the majors just mean so much more to him at this stage. So I think Djokovic is one for me just because now if he loses this, it's he's lost twice in a row. And it's just like, okay, like are we that sure he's that much ahead of the field any longer with all of these young guys nipping at his heels? Now, I do think he's going to win the event, to your point, and I think he'll answer that question. But him losing feels like it would be the biggest storyline it's interesting you make the case for Medvedev. You actually might have convinced me he's number two because it's kind of just send a reminder like, wait, this is an indoor hardcore event and I'm Daniil Medvedev. I'm going to crush all of you. Even you, Felix. Watch this. I'm going to max your serve and I'm going to absorb enough of your first strike to make it happen. But I actually think Casper's the guy because you're right. It doesn't matter to Casper. But let me also ask you this. Does any member of this field look at Casper and say, I'm afraid to play you? Like, I just think the answer's no. And I do think, like, we Casper made two slime finals this year. Casper's really, really good. How great is he? Like, I want to see a message from Casper where it's just like, no, I reached number two in the world for a reason this year. I reached two slam finals for a reason this year. This isn't even my best surface, and yet I'm going to get two wins in round robin play. Like, I just, I need that from Casper if I'm going to put him in tier one. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, this is your chance to get big wins, obviously, yeah. with this field. And that's what Casper kind of is lacking, I think, for both of us. You know, we both don't feel like like he's the, the what, the second best player in the world. We had uh, this the- discussion at, at dinner on Sunday where it was like, if I told you he was seven, it would be like, yeah, it feels about right. Totally. Uh, yeah, 100%. And that's because uh, there have been, you know, the the two biggest tour, two of the four biggest tournaments of the year, he has taken advantage of really good draws, um, and and yes, he's had some high quality wins. I thought the win against Matteo Berrettini in the in the U.S. Open was that a quarterfinal? Yes, uh, I think that's the biggest win that he had in either of the runs. So okay, you know, 
it's a good one, but normally to make two major finals in a year, you're going to need a bigger win than Matteo Berrettini. Yeah, this yeah. could be, there's a big opportunity for Casper. I just think there's an acceptance of uh, these indoor hard courts that don't bounce. It just doesn't give them a good chance to, to succeed. It doesn't give them a good chance to do well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's why I would love to see him do well, because it would be a message that no, 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 no. This year was about me establishing myself as one of the guys at the top of the game. And I think a strong run to end this season would do exactly that. That said, hour and a half. I've kept you long enough. My dear friend Dalton is mandating that I now let you go. And welcome to our Cracked Rackets team. It is great to have you here. It is great, as always, to get to spend some time with you in L.A. And it is always a pleasure to chat about everything happening in the ATP and WTA tennis world. With that said, any final Paris thoughts? Any final things you'd like to plug? Well, just uh, so excited to to join you guys. Yeah, give me um, a sound effect, Westoff. Come on, part of the team. Let's celebrate. <laughs> Not too bad. Uh, look, I've just I've been, you know, with watching what Dalton, yourself, Westoff have been doing for a while, and uh, I've always been completely into it, and. I think, you know, after doing my thing uh, independently in terms of Monday match analysis for a long time, like this was always kind of the the goal and what I hoped it would lead to is to be able to to join forces with uh with great, you know, great talents and and great people as as all three of you are. Yeah, none were available so you joined us. Uh no, <laughs> it's just uh look, what you'll learn very quickly as everyone knows, it's Westoff. Westoff is the man that makes the world goes round here. It was funny. We were chatting about the friends we have in Indy. And Westoff was like, do you consider me on that list? I was like, no, I consider you a life partner. I was like, it's like friendship. I was like, we're beyond that, my friend. Like, I, I can't get through a day. Um, but I will say this. Our team is made much, much more handsome. Um, I, you know, I'm just happy I now have an eyebrowed ally. It's like yeah. if the thickies take on the normies, we're gonna take them out. Like we we have we have a voting block now. Dare I say here on election day? So um, no, it is a pleasure to have you on the team. You know, we admire you. You bring professionalism to everything you do. And now I'm never going to feel guilty asking you to come on this show again. So that's the real <laughs> win here coming out of this. But Monday Match Analysis, three a tennis show. Check them out. Part of our – I don't know if they're both part of the crack. I, you know what? I don't know how it works yet. I just know we get Gil Gross as part of our team. <laughs> With that said, we also get our super producer, Daniel Westoff, a f- any job to do day in, day out, making everything possible. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for the fantastic Cracked Rackets contributor, Gil Gross, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell the people? Great shot. Also, that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. We got them both in. I like it. That's just good branding. Yeah. Got to get him in. <laughs>